from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, February 25th. Today, House Democrats launch a challenge to the national emergency, a how-to on egg freezing, and adjunct professors fight for better pay. Ever since President Trump first floated the idea of declaring a national emergency to fund a border wall, House Democrats have called it an overreach of presidential powers. The precedent that the president is setting here is something that should be met with great unease and dismay by the Republicans. And on Tuesday, the House is planning to do something about it. Democrats are going to pass a resolution to basically say that they disapprove of the president not only declaring the national emergency, but also repurposing money. Tolu Olorunipa covers politics for The Post. The House has a very strong opinion about matters of spending because in the Constitution, the Congress is supposed to have the power of the purse string. So this is the president sort of doing an end run around Congress. But there is a provision in the law that allows the Congress to vote to either approve or disapprove of the president's national emergency. This is obviously expected to pass the House because the House is controlled by Democrats. But then it goes over to a Republican-controlled Senate. There's a potential that it actually might get passed. What does that say about where Republicans are at right now? There is bipartisan opposition to the president's decision to basically override and do an end run around Congress. So there are a number of Republicans in the Senate who, even though a lot of them do support the president, do not believe this is the right decision. They do not believe this is constitutional. They think that this would reduce the amount of power that Congress has, and it would basically cede a, a, great num- a great amount of power to the presidency. I'm disappointed that the president has chosen to go this route. So we got to be very careful about endorsing right. broad right. uses of executive power in our republic. If you have all the Democrats on board, you really only need about four Republicans to break ranks in order for this to pass the Senate. And there are many more than four Republicans who have voiced a concern about this. How is the White House responding to this? They have basically decided that the president can veto this. They know that there's not a big enough majority to overrule the president's veto. So they're not even really whipping votes. They're not really trying that hard to keep Republicans from voting against this. The president may even see some political benefit in being able to sign a veto saying that I am going to fight as hard as possible for the border wall. I'm going to fight Republicans. I'm going to fight Democrats. And he's going to be able to show his supporters that he is going to the mat fighting for the for the border wall. So Somewhat surprisingly, that the White House has not made a major effort to try to keep this bill from getting to the president's desk. They realize that they don't necessarily have the votes at this point and that even if the president vetoes this, this is not something that's going to go back to the White House. It's not going to get overridden. Will you definitively veto that resolution that it would block your national emergency if it passes? On the wall? Yes. Will I veto it? 100%. 100 percent. And I don't think it survives a veto. We have too many smart people that want border security. So I can't imagine it could survive a veto, but I will veto it. Yes. Is there any other way for a Democratic-controlled House to stop the president 
The House has arguably standing to potentially file a lawsuit as well, and that's something that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that she's considering. They could file a lawsuit and they could say, you know, we have powers under the Constitution to decide where taxpayer money gets spent, and the president declaring this national emergency is basically overruling our powers, and we believe that the court should step in. So that would be where I would expect the next step to be for a democratically controlled House to take action, but we're not there yet. So I think the the, the legal process is probably where this gets settled. And we saw right after the president declared the national emergency that there was this cascade of lawsuits from states all over the country using different legal arguments to make the case that, that the president cannot do this. What is the status of those lawsuits? So we're very early in the process. Lawsuits have been filed. They've laid out their rationale as to why the president cannot just repurpose money as he likes um, overruling Congress. There have been no rulings yet. This is just something that's going through the legal process. What the plaintiffs want in this case is that they want a national injunction. They want the courts to say, okay, you're likely to win, so we're going to stop the president from doing this for now, and we're going to let the court case play out. They're basically buying time, right? Right. They're trying to stop the president from starting this wall right now, hoping that they can— Stop him for the next couple of years, at least. Yeah, and these court battles can take months and months, if not years, to to work their way through the system. So that's the Democrats' best hope is that a judge early in the process would say, look, we know this is going to take a long time, but we do think that you have the law on your side so far. So we are going to put a nationwide injunction on the president, stop him from repurposing any money put a freeze on this issue until the courts can decide. And that would basically keep the president from building the border wall unless the courts decide that he does have that authority. But that would definitely delay the president from building a wall for several months at least. The Post also broke news that a bipartisan group of former national security officials, they wrote this letter saying that there's no factual basis for the national emergency. Will that make any difference either in the court of public opinion or in the actual courts? The fact that this is a bipartisan group that includes both Republicans and Democrats shows that the president is somewhat isolated in saying that this is a national emergency, not only a bipartisan group, but a group of highly respected national security officials whose job it has been over the past several decades uh, has been to look at national security threats to the country. And they're saying very clearly that they don't believe that the president is right when he says that the border is a national emergency. So that does have some sway with public opinion. I imagine it'll be an exhibit in the court as well that if the court decides to weigh in on whether or not the president is right in calling this a national emergency, they will look at expertise from former officials to decide whether or not the president is right or wrong. So while all of this is happening, while Congress is, or at least the House, is trying to stop the president from building a wall, and while all of these court cases are going to start going their way through the legal system, what is actually happening in terms of building the wall? Like, have they already started the process of contracting out this huge infrastructure project? Yeah, this this is an interesting mix because the president did get some funding in the spending bill that passed recently. He got about $1.4 billion for border barriers. A lot of it is replacement fencing, but it's basically money that can be used to build barriers on the southern border. So even before the president gets into using money from the national emergency, he can use the money that's already been appropriated to build what he calls a wall, which is really fencing on the southern border. So a lot of that process has started, but they haven't actually started the national emergency. They haven't dipped into that pot yet because it 
it takes a lot of action. I mean, you have to repurpose money. You have to figure out which projects you're going to take money from. You have to decide where the money's going to go. You have all of these legal battles that are playing out. So that's going to be a months-long process to get all of that contracted. That's going to take quite a while, but the president has said uh, he's changing his slogan from build the wall to finish the wall. So he wants everyone to know that he's already started the process of building the wall. And there have been contracts that have been given out for replacement fencing and border barriers under congressionally approved funding. But nothing has been done with the money that's sort of more controversial, which is money from the national emergency. Tolu Olorunipa is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. The biological clock, most commonly known as this idea that a woman's ability to conceive diminishes over time. It can be a source of anxiety for women, and it can also be the butt of a lot of jokes, like in the movie My Cousin Vinny. We agreed to get married as soon as you won your first case. Meanwhile, 10 years later, my niece, the daughter of my sister, is getting married. My biological clock is ticking like this. And the way this case is going, I ain't never getting married. The phrase biological clock was actually coined in the Washington Post. Columnist Richard Cohen wrote about what it's like to have lunch across from a woman whose biological clock is ticking. Quote, you hear it wherever you go. That was 1978. Now, it's becoming more common to talk openly and seriously about fertility. And more women are electing to freeze their eggs, giving them more flexibility and options when it comes to starting a family. It's a big and highly individual decision. My name is Nicole Ellis, and I am a filmmaker and host. Should I start over? Yes. (laughs) My name is Nicole Ellis, and I am a video host and filmmaker here at The Washington Post. Nicole decided that she wanted to explore what it takes for a woman to freeze her eggs and how much that would cost. I had been thinking about it for a while on a personal level, like just thinking about my own life choices and was newly single and trying to figure out what that meant as a 29-year-old woman. And so I searched on ZocDoc, the like sort of doctor app, egg freezing, and an endocrinologist popped up. So she documented her reporting experience in an eight-part video series for The Post. I'm Nicole. I'm a reporter and filmmaker for The Washington Post. I'm turning 30 in a few months. I feel like 30 is that age where you reconcile, like, like where you thought you'd be in life with where you actually are. And if I'm being honest with myself, I'm just now getting the hang of being an adult. How much did you know about egg freezing before this process? Those words. I didn't even know where to start besides putting in search terms. Well, take me through the process of who you started talking to to learn more. So the first step was literally making an appointment with an endocrinologist or at a fertility clinic and getting blood work done. So I went in and had blood drawn for a myriad of blood tests, the antimullarian hormone test, the follicle-stimulating hormone test, and a transvaginal ultrasound where they literally go in there with a probe and count your follicles. And all three of those tests combined give doctors a sense of the likelihood of how many eggs you'd get if you did go through egg freezing. And when you went through that process, you you were kind of surprised by the results. I was very surprised by the results. Usually, 
Um, when women are 29, I'm telling them, you should wait. However, given that your ovarian reserve is a little bit below average, to preserve some fertility would be reasonable as well. I was more in shock than I was a reporter, <laughs> to be completely honest. And she basically told me that I had perceivably low ovarian reserve for a woman my age. And the connection she made was that that would make me a great candidate for egg freezing, which was horrifying on multiple levels because it made me feel like I was unhealthy or might not be able to have kids on my own. Like it just triggered all of these anxieties that were like distant concerns, things that I never confronted, nor did I know I needed to be thinking that seriously about. Like all of this was an exploratory reporting mission to me yeah, until that moment. It sounded like when you went into this, you were like, oh, it would be interesting to find out what it would mean to freeze your eggs. But it's not, it wasn't, it didn't seem like it was something that you were actually seriously considering until you went to this endocrinologist and she was like, you would actually be a candidate to do it now. Yeah, it was all roses and fields of flowers and grass until that moment. <laughs> so you went through the whole exploratory, like trying to figure out how it actually works when you freeze your eggs. But then you had all these other conversations about the other factors involved with this. And you mentioned cost. What is the cost? For me, it would have been easily upwards of $40,000. $40,000? Yeah. For just to store some eggs? Well, to, 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 to harvest them, to take them out, to put them in a freezer. And that's, that's sort of on its face in terms of it could get really complicated in terms of how many cycles I do and whether or not I pay for them on my own. But it depends on how you approach it. You could do a bundle package and then it costs around $25,000. And that's, again, also not including the cost of storing them every year. And that's another 500 to $1,200. I mean, what you're talking about is getting close to the equivalent of potentially like a down payment on a house and then the cost of a mortgage. Yeah, it could very much so cost a lot more than that. Something, a, a very big goal and passion of mine is to buy a house. I've always wanted to buy a home. Um, Why is it important to you? My mom decided to become a doctor. Basically, she she pursued her life dream of becoming a doctor after I was born. And that was a huge financial sacrifice for her that also meant that we moved around all the time. So it's been a little bit of a, a source of insecurity because I am blessed to have an amazing community of family and friends, but my mom and I don't own a home in our the neighborhood we grew up in. And so I've always just wanted wanted to have that like stability and that that one sort of unifying factor. And it's just always been something on my mind. So you have this one big goal to own a house, but then you have this other goal, which is to eventually become a mom, and you had to decide how you were going to weigh those two things. Yeah, I had to, um, you know, the whole point of wanting a, a stable home is also to start creating and building a family in it. And when I talked to Tanya, the financial planner, it became very clear that this is an ultimatum. Cut and dry. Can you technically afford to do this based on what you have saved? Absolutely. And you can afford to do it without creating debt, which is really important. But it's not smart for you to freeze your eggs 
and purchase a home on your own. You just have to decide how willing are you to sacrifice everything else. It's a high-risk decision um, whether or not I, I do freeze my eggs. But in addition to that, it's not a guarantee. It's not the same security as a structure, as a house, as cement, as brick, as, you know, all the things that make a home a reliable investment. Egg freezing still thinner than an insurance policy because it's not a guarantee. Mm -hmm. um, but also something that most women in my shoes and who have the financial wherewithal to do might just go for because it it does afford you some relief from that anxiety and that fear about the future and, and what's to come and the fact that so much of it is out of our control. It feels like even a few years ago, egg freezing was considered something that was pretty rare and honestly, like, somewhat extreme. Like, I feel like I would hear people make jokes about egg freezing as sort of, like, the path of last resort for, like, older single women or whatever. But it it seems like now it's becoming more normalized and people take it more seriously as, like, a very real, important option for a lot of women. Do you see that translating into more support and resources for women who are considering it, and also from employers who who can help women have that as, an, as a realistic financial option? I definitely see employers um, using that as an incentive to get young talent in the door. Um, whether or not there's more support is to be determined. I think that was one of the byproducts of this story is that there actually is not much support out there, nor is there a nonprofit dedicated to, you know, women's elective choices when it comes to their fertility. I do think that conversations around our fertility and egg freezing um, have become more normalized. And I, I like that because I don't, you know, we are the first generation to be waiting this long to have kids. And we typically hear more from women who've been successful at conceiving later in life than women who aren't, which can really warp your perspective of, of what your body will allow. Not everyone's and not every woman's body is created the same way. Um, so my advice would also be to kind of ignore the background noise. Like, figure things out and weigh your options based on your desires and not based on public opinion. Because if you're operating under the assumption that, you know, you and Bridget Nielsen have the same uterus, you'd be wrong. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you, Martine. Nicole Ellis is a video host and filmmaker at The Post. To find out what Nicole ultimately decided, go to WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. And now, one more thing about adjunct professors, who represent 40% of the higher education academic workforce in the United States. These are folks with the same level of education as full-time professors, but they're teaching for a fraction of the pay. That's The Post's Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. I specifically cover the economics of higher education. That means everything from student loans, college endowments, essentially anything that has to do with the money side of higher ed. 
And lately, Danielle's been looking at how adjunct professors struggle to make a living, especially because adjuncts often make far less money than full-time faculty. Now, that could be anywhere as low as $1,500 at some schools to as high as $8,000. But it varies very much depending on private, two-year or four-year, or how well endowed those schools are. One professor that Danielle spoke with said that he taught 22 classes in one semester. But conditions at some schools are starting to change. And that's because of adjunct faculty who started working with unions for better conditions. You've seen Duke University, a private school in North Carolina. They recently were successful in getting a contract that increased their salary as well as benefits. Loyola, Chicago, last year, their adjuncts actually staged a walkout. And that got them back to the table with the administration. And after much discussion and debate, they were able to eke out a contract that was to the satisfaction of the majority of the adjuncts. So we're seeing, you know, at a variety of schools across the country, adjuncts are really pushing for more. And for the most part, they're receiving it. And what's really remarkable about this effort is that it's been very successful thus far. By and large, a lot of schools are being supportive of adjuncts in their plight, or at least they're not pushing back as hard as they have uh, other types of contingent faculty. And a part of that is because they need these guys. They need them to teach their classes. And as a result, they are able to fight for a better wage and better benefits. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel covers money and education for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Today is the last day to take our survey and potentially win an Amazon gift card. You can find it at postreports.com survey. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 